Hi, everybody. This is Science Modeling Talks, the podcast that features top modeling instructors and thought leaders sharing ideas. I'm your host, Mark Royce. Remember to visit sciencemodelingtalks.com to access extra content related to our interviews and to learn more about our guests. While you're there, share your thoughts and comments by clicking the link that says, Tell us what you think. We really want to hear from you. Okay, let's get started with today's episode. My guest for this episode is Brant Heinrichs. Brant spent several summers working on high-energy physics experiments at Brookhaven National Laboratory where the asymmetrical scattering of polarized beam protons on a polarized proton target was investigated. Then, in 1987, it was on to University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign for PhD studies in physics. He spent two years in Tokyo, Japan as a research postdoc, returning to the States in 1997 to begin a teaching career. He got hooked on investigating how his students learned and didn't learn, and now does work in physics education research, comparing how students learn and understand microscopic and macroscopic models of physics phenomena. His formal training in modeling was with the remodeled University Physics Workshops run at Arizona State University in 2001 and 2002. He currently is an associate professor at Drury University, a small private university in Springfield, Missouri, where he teaches the gamut from general physics to senior level quantum mechanics. Brandt's specialties in teaching are applying the university modeling approach to his many different classes. Here's my interview with Brandt. Hi, Brandt. Hey, thanks for uh, joining me today. How are you? Hi, Mark. Nice to meet you. I'm doing all right. Just fine. Thanks. Awesome. Happy to be here. Yeah, I'm glad, really glad you're here. Um, as I've researched a little bit about you, it's been very intriguing, and I'm excited for our conversation today. And I, I'm looking forward to what you have to share with our listeners as well. It's um, going to be a good one. I, uh, you know, I noticed in your bio that at one point you were you lived in Japan. And before we dig into all the science stuff, I wanted to ask you, how did you end up going to Japan? Um, so uh, I had a lot of international students as friends in graduate school, and I wanted that experience for myself. And I found out about a program through the National Science Foundation that they would, you would apply through them, and they would do all the appropriate vetting. And then they would, uh, sorry, you would find uh, somebody in Japan who would be willing to take you and agree to sort of the subject matter and such. And then you would apply through the National Science Foundation. Um, there was a program set up. I don't know if you remember back in the, let's see, late 80s. Uh, the first Bush was trying to um, press Japan to get more sort of exchanges going between America, Japan. Mm -hmm. And um, one of these was to try to encourage. There are a lot of Japanese that come to America, but not so many go to Japan. So this program was set up through those negotiations. So... Um, I was uh, vetted through the National Science Foundation, but fully paid by the equivalent to Japanese uh, Society for Japanese Foundation for the Promotion of Science, I think it was called, uh -huh. um, fully funded by them. 
um, to go there for to do a postdoc. So I went to Japan to do a, a postdoc for one year, and then it renewed for a second year. Cool. And that's where you met your wife? Actually, not. I met my wife in uh, graduate school at Illinois. So oh. we were, yeah, we were, we both ended up being uh, members of a graduate university Christian fellowship there at Illinois. Uh-huh. And we met through doing social activities and things through that group. So Cool. So when you went to Japan, had you, let's see, that was in the 80s? 95 was ah. when I, so the program okay. started late 80s, and then it went on for, I'm not sure, five to 10 years after that. Yeah, so I went 95 to 97. That's right. Uh-huh. So at what point did you get introduced to modeling instruction? That came much later. Uh, my first workshop in modeling instruction was 2001. So uh-huh. I, I came back from Japan. It's very difficult to get a, a sort of a long-term job from overseas. Most people don't want to fly you back to interview. And this is, this is late 90s, right? Zoom doesn't exist. The Internet's just, you know, I, like, I was using Netscape <laughs> browser, you know, and stuff like yeah. that. So I came back. I um, did the proverbial. Uh, I lived at home with my folks. <laughs> and um, there was a university nearby, and I applied and got a visiting professorship there and then there there was a this is a long story but i promise it's getting there <laughs> um uh, there was a person there beth ann thacker who's now at texas tech who was a physics education researcher and uh she got me introduced to physics education research she was doing physics by inquiry university of washington tutorials and those kinds of materials and I learned about the force concept inventory and started reading about those things. And she was kind of my early mentor. So then I started exploring different physics education research-based curriculum. And I learned about workshop physics and real-time physics and things. And then um, through reading about the force concept inventory, I started learning about modeling. And, um, and so in 2001, there was a, uh, the, a group that did university modeling. It was called... Um, Remodeled University Physics, RUP. And it was uh, organized by Dwayne Dabian, Eric Brew, and Mike Politano, who were all graduate students at Arizona State University at the time. So they organized from their university perspective, which is not to say it's better or worse, but it's just from their perspective what they were doing, like in community colleges and colleges that might be a little different or tweaked from the high school. So I did three weeks of that. And then I was a glutton for punishment and came back the next summer and did three more weeks. <laughs> and uh, that was my official introduction. Um, so I'm not quite sure how the RUP, uh, Remodeled University Physics Workshops, compare and contrast to the sort of more standard two- to three-week high school summer modeling workshops because um, I've never personally experienced one of those. I've been doing what I do based on that. And then, in addition, I, um, I spent a sabbatical in 2009 with Dwayne shadowing him at Australia Mountain Community College in his introductory sequence courses, watching him every day to see how it worked and trying to learn better the, the subtleties and intricacies and things of that nature that go on from day to day. Right. Interesting. What have you discovered about the differences between modeling in a university setting versus modeling in a high school setting? Uh, have you discovered anything talking with other high school modelers or, you know, in your research? Mm-hmm. 
mostly what I've discovered is through like looking at worksheets and handouts that I've seen that people have had that people have shown me um, I haven't personally experienced one so I'm not quite exactly sure I've, I've heard things about um, so for example I've heard high schools tend to do more uh, single groups present and other groups watch whereas I tend to do more the so-called board meeting right modeling discourse management uh, that Dwayne Debian wrote his thesis on though I understand yeah. many high school groups or teachers are going to that model um, I think what I've heard again uh, again maybe this changed is that in high schools there tends to be a lot of uh, curve fitting and linearization of data and um, we basically didn't learn or do any of that in the university setting and then um, I think the general sequence of taking data, you know, the modeling sequence of taking data, making a model, deploying it, and then refining it, etc. I think that's, in my experience, what that's, I feel like, what I do in the classroom. Again, I'm not exactly sure how the high school folks do that mm. in detail, but the general cycle sounds similar. And then um, I've, I've done, uh, so one of the things I've tried to do in my research is to try to find evidence to show the effectiveness of the different aspects of modeling. And um, the first thing I did, I wrote a paper in 2004 about uh, the system schema. And what I discovered when I was writing that paper is there's basically two papers on the system schema. Lou Turner wrote one in The Physics Teacher, uh, I think in the late, maybe 1997 or 98. And then I wrote one in 2004 for the Physics Education Research Conference. And so the system schema actually differs pretty significantly uh, between the high school approach as Lou showed it and the way I learned it and use it in the university setting. So you want me to go into details of that or we can do that? Sure, later? yeah, I, I would like to know more about the term system schema. A lot uh, of our listeners may know about that, but, sure. but that's not something I'm familiar with. Sure. Maybe you could help me understand that. Sure, sure, sure. Happy to. So I'm kind of a system schema evangelist, as it were. <laughs> it's um, one of my favorite representational tools. I think of it as sort of the first level of abstraction after drawing a physical picture. So maybe I have a, a, a book on a block on a table. Um, and that would be, you know, I could just draw a physical picture of that scenario. And then the next um, step that I use, uh, that I learned from RUP was to think about what are the objects I care about and what are the interactions they're experiencing. So the objects, in this case, are a book, a brick, the table, and then maybe hidden there is earth, is also an important object. And then the interactions are, at least most of uh, mechanics is just a contact interaction or a gravitational interaction. So in the RUP framework, we don't distinguish between tension, for example, or, um, or normal, or friction, or uh, things of that nature. Um, we, we talk about contact forces, and then we resolve the contact force into a normal part, which is perpendicular to the two surfaces interacting, and the friction part, which is uh, or parallel to that interface. So that's that's a, a first blush at that. Um, and mm -hmm. once you've identified what objects and interactions you care about, 
then you can think about what your system is. For forces, systems are usually just a single object, like maybe I'd be interested in the block or the book, and then I could look at the interactions and using a definition. So this is something I don't know about how high school folks think about it, but in, at the university level, we were the definition we use typically use for force is one way to describe an interaction between two objects. Mm-hmm. So that's one way to describe an interaction between two objects. And um, so that's a very powerful definition. It implies lots of things like there's other ways and such. But the idea is force is very complicated and it's an interaction. Best described as an interaction. And we want to emphasize that throughout the entire pedagogy. Mm. So you would circle an object like the book and then look at the objects interacting with it. And are they a contact interaction or a gravitational interaction? And then each one of those interactions would be represented by a force arrow of some relative length and labeled appropriately. Mm. System schema. Yes. Um, Yeah, so what are some of the things that you try to promote? When, when you're talking to others about the about system schema. Mm-hmm. So what's really great is I, I use it at all levels. So there's a lot of different things to say. I use it at all levels of my class, from introductory physics all the way up to quantum mechanics. In modern physics, I use it when we're talking about the, the um, two-slit experiment with uh, light or with uh, things like electrons or protons or neutrons. Um, so it's it's very good at getting at the idea of object interaction and helping students start to think what's there, what's the interaction, and then how am I going to think about or model the interaction. So I can use it in quantum mechanics that way too, and it's holistic that way, even though in general I'm not doing any force kind of things in quantum mechanics. So that's, mm-hmm. um, so that's the first thing. It expands kind of all the possible curriculum, um, upper level courses as well. Um, it's useful for thinking about forces. Um, it's useful for thinking about energy, um, uh, hmm. for helping to make sense of, of work. I think there's been a lot of debate and um, not a lot of consensus in uh, even the physics teaching community about how to think and talk about energy. I think modeling has really brought that forward with a lot of the work that Greg Swackheimer died, did. Um, hmm. But uh, just the idea of thinking about, uh, I think textbooks talk about system, but actually visualizing it and seeing what's inside the system and what's outside and thinking explicitly about where energy is stored. So system schema is very useful for visualizing that. And uh, um, so when everything's inside your system, so another way to model interactions is as energy transfers. Mm -hmm. So if all your objects are inside your system, then there's nothing outside the system and nothing outside the system interacting. So that means all the energy stays constant. Now it might change forms, right? Going to kinetic, to potential, or thermal or something, but the total stays the same. And so the representation I learned, one of the representations I used for that is, learned to use for that is uh, energy pie charts. Um, So I do that a fair amount. But then to... um, Using the idea of contrasting cases that Andrew Heckler has um, researched and discussed a lot. He's at a PER person at Ohio State. The idea of it's um, the way I know something is by also thinking about what it's not. So I will also put in occasionally um, 
ask students to leave some object outside the system but still interacting with it. So maybe a hand pushing a book across the floor or something. I can put everything inside the system, the hand, or I can put the hand outside. And how does that change the pie chart? And then that naturally leads into the idea of working, which is objects outside the system interacting with the system. And it's a great way to visualize it and coordinate it and think about it in that level. And then from making uh, pie chart representations, then you can write equations straight from the pie charts and what you visualize. So it's all holistic. You can teach each step separately as a concept, but then at the end, you can get out quantitative equations that you can then calculate with. So it's all sort of seamless and holistic and flows from one thing to the next, if that makes any sense. Yeah, it does. You know, in all uh, physics instruction and, and even in chemistry instruction, the idea of how to help students understand the role and and the properties of energy and its exchange and you know is always a very important part of the classroom you've talked to us about energy and pie charts and and that kind of thing what have you learned also about instruction around the idea of energy talk to us a little bit about that yeah that's a really good question. So I'd say a lot I learned uh, from uh, reading Greg Swackheimer's papers and thinking about energy. Um, we used to say energy is not a substance, and uh, but it turns out that if you look at the way people talk about it, um, it's useful to model it as a substance. Um, and that it, it, it's, we talk about energy as not a, it's neither created nor destroyed, it's just transferred by interactions. So right. thinking about it that way, um, is it's a conserved quantity that can be changed, transferred by interactions, has been, um, I think, extremely helpful. Um, thinking about where is another important question I learned to ask and think about is where is energy stored? Um, so we can think about, uh, it gets a little technical at some points, but uh, like kinetic energy is stored in the energy of motion. So if an object's speeding up, you know, a train's speeding up, then the energy is stored in the train itself, you know. A long time ago, bef- uh, back when you know, in the 17, 1800s, people wanted to store energy. They would spin up a flywheel, right? And the energy would be, right, like from a falling waterfall or something. And then energy would be stored in the motion of the flywheel. So, um, but also the more challenging one is to think about like where potential energy is stored. And this is subtle and um, it comes out in modeling by thinking about it stored in the interaction itself, gravitational potential. So. It, it's it's easier to see uh, than to talk about, but the idea is that neither uh, a box nor the floor and earth has potential energy, but only the system together, that it's stored in the interaction itself, um, and you need both of those inside your system in order to say it exists. And that's a very challenging concept f- for students and uh, instructors and teaching. And books often use the language of what's the potential energy of the book if it's two feet off the floor, right? Um, and that language is both, it's, professionals understand the point, but it, it, it confuses the issue and, um, and uh, confuses students and leads to uh, challenging questions and concepts. It gets carried over into like atoms, right? So electrons don't have potential energy. The atom has this energy, right? There's an interaction, the electrical interaction between the electron orbiting and the proton and the nucleus. So that's another 
place where it shows up. So the same exact representations can be exactly carried over into modeling physics. I'm sorry, into modern physics where we model the hydrogen atom just as a, um, you know, like a, a uniform circular motion kind of problem like uh, Niels Bohr first proposed um, mm-hmm. with fixed, fixed orbits. So I would say that's uh, a big aspect of where I've, where is energy stored has been a fundamental question to ask students and have them think about um, and help them to coordinate with all their representations. Yeah, that's good. In your research, you mentioned, um, or I, I read a little bit, you talked about the importance of paying attention to social positioning in the yes. classroom yes. and uh, the idea of promoting consensus building. Yes. Talk to us a little bit about what you've learned in your research about that stuff. Sure. Um, can I say one more thing about the system scheme and then come back to that? Sure, sure. Would that be okay? Oh, yeah. So um, I have another paper that came out, and it was just an empirical paper. And it was really fascinating. <clears throat> so I do board meetings. I have students work in small groups. Mm-hmm. And then they circle up, and they have a whole class discussion, and they work to try to reach consensus. So this builds into your question about consensus building. Mm-hmm. And um, I record those large group conversations, so I have some kind of that. And then, of course, I sit there and listen to what they're, what they're saying. But then I can go back later and listen to the audio and maybe analyze it for different things. Um, Students are taught to write force symbols a certain way and taught to say them a certain way. And um, it's, it's hard to put into words, but um, so if you have a contact interaction between a book and a brick, then you might, the symbol would be F for force, and then it would be a C for a contact interaction, and it would be by brick on book, for example. So there would be three, two subscripts and a superscript. And what I was finding is that some of my very, you know, some of my good students who really love physics and were working hard tripped over the language of saying that. Um, instead of saying contact force by book on brick, they would say force contact, or they would say contact, or they would say gravitational for a gravitational force. Because the C superscript or the G superscript was on the right side of the F if that makes any sense. So they were reading the symbol left to right. So one time, I don't have a textbook for the class, so I can change things um, if I want. And so I just did. I just, the next year, I just changed the symbol. And I put the C for the contact force or the G for the gravitational force on the left side. So if you read the symbol from left to right, you would literally read contact force by book on brick or gravitational force, force by earth on brick. And I just had a student, um, Dana Swanson, uh, listen to 600 minutes of audio <laughs> and, wow. and go, through the, go through problems that were the same from the two years. And what I, <clears throat> what I discovered in this empirical study was that moving that script, superscript from the right side of the force to the left completely eliminated the problem. Like huh. there were no instances. Students didn't say force contact or contact or gravitational. And... Um, or they might say force of contact, right? Or force of gravitational. And it's a kind of a subtle problem. And I, you know, it's, 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 um, it's not uh, conclusive, but it could be, you know, when students say things like that, they're thinking that the contact has the force or the gravitation has the force. When, when what we want to say is, no, it's objects, earth, brick, book, that exert force. So just refining the language so that what they say is as 
clear and precise as possible and just giving them one less thing that they have to trip over, right, if they can read it. So it turns out students, at least for force, naturally read force symbols left to right, um, even if you put them differently. Um, so, and uh, the question is, what about energy? And it seems like they're less um, picky about energy. They'll read energy always in a way that makes sense. Like they'll say kinetic energy or they'll say energy kinetic. And both those cases are probably okay. They don't say energy of kinetic, for example. So they seem to be um, more flexible with energy, which is a scalar, reading those symbols that they do with force, which is a vector. So that was a, there's a paper, and I guess uh, you'll link the paper into the podcast. Um, the title uh, of that paper. You say, I have a few of your papers, and we're going to put links for them on the website. So if you go to uh, sciencemodelingtalks.com, uh, as a listener, you can actually read some of the papers that Brandt has uh, produced, and, and they're f- quite fascinating, and I think they might be very informative for you in your classroom. So let me just put that plug in, and now let's get back to what you were saying there. Oh, thank you. I appreciate that. Uh, so uh, I think the title of that paper is something like, uh, Changing the Way a Force is Written Changes the Way Students Say It. Mm-hmm. Um, and the uh, other paper I was talking about, about system schema, is uh, using the system schema to help develop conceptual understanding of Newton's third law. Um, roughly, that's the title. Okay, and then you asked about social positioning. So, social positioning is, a, is an idea, so I'm now changing and getting back to your original question. Social positioning is an idea and concept that was, uh, I don't know if it was invented by, but it was developed and refined by David Brooks who does physics education research. He uh, worked with Eugenia Atkina at Rutgers on Isle and then is now at Chico State. So um, this is the idea that people position themselves. This is all about, um, it's not about content understanding. It's about social understanding. And it's about how people position themselves socially as experts or not. So if I speak if I speak, so it has nothing to do with whether I actually know what I'm talking about. It's kind of a level of confidence. So if I say, well, the answer is, of course, 42, that's a very confident answer, right? But if I hedge, um, if I say, I, th- I think the answer might be 42, or I'm thinking the answer is 42, or we got the answer is 42, but what do you guys have, right? So kind of a hedging or a hesitation. Things like Socratic questioning is also an example of this. Um, that kind of lowers the social barrier, and his uh, his his working hypothesis was that if uh, people position themselves not as experts but as intermediate experts, then that lowers that um, opens up the space for conversation, and people feel more free to jump in and disagree and have conversation. Um, and so that was his his model of student interaction, right? Um, he was looking at it in the small groups, but I don't have small group data. All I have is large group or board meeting data. So once I heard his talk and I said, oh, that seems like it's, it's perfect for analyzing some large group audio, board meeting audio that I had. So I, um, I picked out two large group board meetings from my introductory uh, calculus-based physics class. And one I thought was amazing. It, they, they talked and they... Um, they worked on a really hard problem, and they came to a consensus, and they were very happy about it. That was the first problem. And then the second problem, which was a different problem, actually a different class, too, 
they talked and talked and talked, and they just they couldn't get a consensus. They went around and around and around. And so um, we looked at that audio and we analyzed it using his idea of social positioning. And we showed that there was empirical support to this idea that in the first case where they came to consensus, we had a lot more people positioning themselves as intermediate experts, asking mm. questions of others, hedging, saying I think or I might or those kinds of things compared to the second problem where students tended to more position themselves as experts, made sort of more declarative statements as facts. And so that was some initial empirical support for the idea that um, the way people, and this is, these are in really, the key is they're in really hard problems where um, you need everybody on board. And if you have, you know, the more people, the more brains, the, you know, sort of group intelligence goes up if people are communicating clearly. So that was some empirical support for that idea that if, if people tend to hedge or, you know, sort of don't position themselves as experts, um, that that can tend to lead to forming consensus more productively in, in really hard problems. You, you know, your research is pretty fascinating, and I think the things you've been learning through it have a lot of uh, potential to help teachers uh, in their pursuit of excellence in their classroom. Can you share, from what you've learned in your research, what would be your best modeling tip if for modeling instructors? What would be the thing that you would say, boy, this is really important as a modeling instructor for you to know about? Just share with us what you would say would be your best teaching or modeling and you know instruction tip. Yes. I, can I give two? Sure, yeah. Okay. No, you can, yeah, you can share as much uh, as you want. <laughs> so I would say building on the... Um, so I'm kind of a, a, a nerd, an egghead. I'm very... I live in my own head and I'm very conceptual. And it's taken me a long time to learn to pay attention to my students' emotions and um, their social aspects in the classroom. I get so wrapped up in... Are, are the ideas kind of flowing and making sense that I don't always track... Um, how they're interacting, what the dynamic of the social is. And um, hmm. I, I, that's my flaw. I think lots of other people are way better at that. But So in regards to the social positioning, one of the things I've taken to um, doing, and this also I get from uh, a guy named Dewey Dykstra, who uh, taught inquiry uh, physics at Boise State for many years. Um, and this is the idea that I start basically the first day of class talking about when we first circle up and we're working on a problem and it's a whole class board meeting, um, I talk about the goal is not to be right. <laughs> the goal is not to win. I ask, does anybody do debate in high school? Because and sometimes I get those kinds of students, and of, the goal in high school debate is to win. And you actually prepare both sides of the argument, and there's a coin flip the day of the, the competition, and they say, okay, you have the negative, you know, defend the negative, or you have the positive, defend positive so those people are really good at arguing <laughs> and yeah. um, that's not the goal so the goal is I tell them explicitly the goal is not to win the goal is not to um, but the goal is to understand first right so can I understand um, what the other person is saying first and maybe make ask questions and really get at why um, what they said is different from mine or bothers me or is good, I find confusing 
and I use something from Dewey Dykstra called, he, I call it the four dispositions, but one of those is, um, yeah, do I first, uh, basically respecting other people's ideas. Do I first take the other idea and treat it with respect and say, what does that mean? Do I really understand it? And, um, and, and get really confident of that rather than out and out just challenging and saying, no, you're wrong, or that makes no sense, or that's stupid. Um, and I think, in my experience, physics culture can be very aggressive. Um, one of my favorite ever um, AAP talks was, I think, maybe in 2019 or or so, I think, at the, at the Washington AAPT meeting. They invited this wonderful um, experimentalist who was working on the radius of the proton problem, and um, she came in, and her the, t- the beginning of her talk was, well, um, I just got back from my annual meeting, and I think I've pretty much recovered from all the cuts and bruises and broken bones. And she was talking about how in the morning the experimentalists would share their latest data, and then um, the theorists would fight it out, kind of a fight club in the afternoon about whose model was better. And um, in my experience, physics, colloquial physics departments can be very, very aggressive. And, um, and I think um, like engineering s- students can be very confident and be a little aggressive too. And in a mixed class like I have, where I have biology folks and chemistry folks, pre-engineers and physics majors, um, the, they have very different personalities. So all that's to say is when I explicitly, you know, at the front, the goal is not to win, the goal is to understand. And then we do some writing and debrief and I try to monitor that and correct it in the moment when I see it in the classroom in a gentle way so that we get used to listening and sharing and understanding first. So that would be mm-hmm. my, my first tip. And then I guess the second tip I would say is um, starting with data first. And um, I always try to start with data first and build a model or a pattern from the data. Even in things like um, modern physics, where we're trying to make sense of phenomena that we can't see, right? No one's seen an electron, no one's seen the proton, um, or in quantum mechanics. So what's the data that I can bring to bear in a, in a modern physics class? Either um, actual data that people ran experiments on, or simulated data that this is what it would look like if you were able to do the experiment. And that, and quantum mechanics, as much as possible, so that the models are always being built out of real phenomena that have been observed, and then from that, you can represent many different ways and talk about it and build what models make sense. You can make a schema, a system schema, talk about the objects and the interaction. So I, I had to learn that, especially in modern physics and quantum mechanics, because um, typically people run experiments and then do data out of it rather than starting with experiments and saying what models we can produce from that. So when you turn it on your head, sometimes the data has to be be different or thought about, about differently. I guess... Um, I guess the last thing I'll say, <laughs> sorry, one more tip. No, you're good. Well, something I learned, um, so IL, the Investigative Science Learning Environment, developed research developed by Eugenia at Kinda's group um, at Rutgers, overlaps really strongly, I think, with modeling. Um, and it has some affordances that I think modeling doesn't. But um, this is not a modeling thing. But one of the things I learned from Eugenia and her work when they're doing modeling is the product- predictions only ever happen after students have some subset of models from which to grab a prediction and apply. So I used to learn, I used to early on, really, really into the illicit 
confront and resolve model of teaching, which is you know there's a difficulty that students have, like uh, um, when you drop two objects, which is going to hit the ground first, right if they're the same size but different mass. And you give them a prediction problem, you know they're going to get it wrong, and then you do the experiment, show it to them, shock them, and then that puts them in a place where maybe they're ready to resolve uh, or think about different ways of thinking about it. But what I found is that that was so emotionally damaging to students. And um, after we'd been doing that kind of teaching for a while, um, students would say, oh, I think the answer is C, but I'm always wrong. And A doesn't make sense to me. So it's probably A. And so I feel like literally <laughs> I, heard a, I heard a student say that out loud. And I'm just like, oh. that's like exactly teaching the opposite epistemology, right? We want students yeah. to think science makes sense and they can understand it and they can um, think about it in, in, in clear and thoughtful ways. So that's not a modeling thing. That didn't come from modeling, but that was something I brought into my teaching and it could be used in modeling. So I, I learned from Eugenia to back away from that a lot. I use it rarely, sort of like for the third law or something, but very, very rarely. And most of the time it's let's describe and build a model and get a suite of models. And then I can look at for example, the uh, two-slit experiment. And now that my students understand a particle model and understand a wave model, I can show them the two-slit experiment and say, here's the data. What's the best model that fits that data? And they right. have those two models already in their back pocket, right? They don't have to develop them. They can look at the data and, 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 and pull one of those out because they're already f familiar and comfortable. I don't know. Is it, yeah. Does that kind of make sense? Yeah. yeah, it does. Those are good tips. So, Brent, the, you had a paper that, um, or a couple of papers, but one was about the integration of math in these science courses. And I'd like you to share with us what you've learned about that. And then uh, there was another paper called Conceptual Resources that, that uh, I'd like you to just share briefly about that as well. So can you dive into those two things? Sure. Um, so one of the great things about being at a small place like Drury is that I teach everything. I teach um, general courses for non-science majors all the way up to senior level quantum mechanics. So it's, it's, it's really nice. You know, if you're in a bigger <laughs> place, you maybe only get to teach an upper level class once every five years maybe, or maybe never yeah. if a senior person has it and <laughs> doesn't want to let it go. So, um, so I've been looking at math, and one of the things I've been looking at is uh, uh, non-Cartesian unit vectors. So not X hat, Y hat, Z hat, or not I hat, J hat, K hat, but looking at R hat, theta hat, and phi hat in the spherical unit vectors and how challenging that is to think about for students. Even in pretty simple problems, just the idea that uh, unit, because Cartesian unit vectors are fixed and always point in the same direction, but non-Cartesian unit vectors like spherical unit vectors, R hat, theta hat, and phi hat, um, directions change depending where you are in space. So I've explored a little of that. I sort of identified the problem with a simple conceptual pretest, and then I've been working on materials to try to help students better grasp and understand and apply those concepts. So that might be of interest to folks who are, who are like the mathematization <laughs> of physics. Because um, that works even like if you just have a current that's uh, on a really long wire along the z-axis, and it's a constant current, then the magnetic field is uh, concentric circles um, with the centers 
uh, at the z-axis and um, you would describe that uh, magnetic field, B field, with uh, phi hat at everywhere in space. So phi hat is the same symbol, but it uh, points in a different direction everywhere in space. And that's pretty mind-blowing if you've been doing Cartesian hmm. unit vectors, which always point the same direction anywhere in space. Hmm. So then out of that paper, um, with a colleague here at uh, Drury, Ng Zhao, um, who has a expertise in resources, Resources is um, also goes by knowledge in pieces. It was uh, research and developed by David Hammer and then also Joe Reddish at the University of Maryland. Um, it's the idea that um, resources are little bits of knowledge or ideas that get activated that people bring to bear in the moment to try to make sense of something in the moment. So examples might be like closer is more. So if I'm closer to a light, it's brighter. Or if I'm closer to a uh, a speaker, it's louder, um, and these, those kinds of things, these, some of these resources develop just because we're humans, brains and bodies living in the world. We have the experience, right? That if I get closer to a light bulb, it's brighter, or if I get closer to a speaker, it gets louder. So, these are little pieces that uh, we might develop because of our experience in the world, but also we might just uh, learn, like the right hand rule, right? I might learn that in a physics class. That's another sort of conceptual resource. There are also epistemological resources, which I won't get into. Anyway, so um, with my colleague, Ying, we studied how were students working together to solve a problem looking at these spherical unit vectors. And um, we were trying to understand, um, was there a framework to understand how they uh, work together to solve the problem? And what we proposed is an idea called shared resources. And this is the idea that one student activates a resource. So they, they might, um, for example, draw spherical coordinates in a, a Cartesian reference frame and say, hey, could we use this? And um, the other student or students in their small group working on a problem could either say yes and they pick it up or just no and they go on. And So we followed students where students would pick up this resource. So one student would say, hey, what about um, spherical coordinates? Could we use that to make sense of spherical unit vectors? And the other student picked it up and said, oh, okay, that kind of makes sense, but what about this? And they kind of go back and forth thinking about it and applying it and using it and making sense and interrogating each other and seeing how it does and doesn't apply. And so we call that a shared resource because one student thought of it, activated it, and said it, and the other agreed that that was a useful idea to bring to bear to solve the problem, and then they worked together with it in that context and then also changing context. So... This is all to say that I like resources as a very nice model for what's, what students have inside their brain and um, trying to identify what are productive resources that students have that they could, can I write a problem that will bring those resources out? Or can I be paying attention and listening and saying, oh, what are those little bits of ideas that they said that are really helpful that I want to support and reinforce so that they get confidence that, they're, you know, that they can make sense of things and also build on what they already have as much as possible. You know, having to always have students change their mind or start from scratch is mentally taxing for them and the instructor. So mm -hmm, yeah. the more the more we can sort of uh, grab and use what f people already and students already bring with them from inside their head, the, I think the, the, the maybe the more effective or uh, more productive their work might be uh, either as individuals or even in, in, in groups. Mm -hmm. 
Wow, that's really good stuff. You know, I this has been a really fascinating uh, talk, and our conversation has been really interesting. I think um, our listeners are going to enjoy it. I uh, I want to thank you so much for taking the time out of your busy schedule and uh, spending this time with me. It's been really great. So well, Mark, I, just... I want to thank you. I want to thank you for the opportunity. It's uh, it's been an honor and humbling to be invited to be on because a lot of my uh, heroes and mentors I've I've heard and seen on here. So uh, I don't oh, think I, I I don't think I can be included in the same breath with them. But oh I'm, my um, goodness, I'm so yeah. thankful that you invited me in. So. Well, I think the whole modeling community is so important, and, and uh, it's great how how everybody who's involved contributes to the joint knowledge of the entire community, and so it's really great to have you be a part of it, too. Absolutely, so. the crowdsourcing. Just to be yeah. clear, if people weren't clear, is that I'm at a small private liberal arts university. I don't know if I made that clear or not, so um, you know, we have about 1,500 students or so. Uh, yeah. Maybe you'll do that in your introduction. It'll be really clear. I don't want. Uh, I just want to make people understand the context that I'm working in. Yeah. Well, it's great, and and uh, it's very fascinating to bring in the the perspective from a university professor. It's really great. So, thank you again so much for being here and taking the time to do this. And my very best wishes for you in your endeavors ahead. Thank you. I really appreciate it. You've been great. It was wonderful talking with you. Yeah. You take care. Thanks so much for joining us on another episode of Science Modeling Talks. Head over to sciencemodelingtalks.com and you'll be able to listen to any of our archived episodes and access our show notes, which include guest bios, show highlights, and links to resources that were mentioned during the interview. While you're there, subscribe to our show so you won't miss out on any of our episodes. When you join this community through our email list, we'll send you a link to a lot of awesome resources from the American Modeling Teachers Association. Okay, so that's our show. As always, remember to keep striving for excellence in your classroom.